you know, school got back into session this past fall, uh, many people would come up to me, especially those who hadn't seen me very much, and they'd say, well, how was your summer? You know, it's just kind of the kind, polite thing to do. And uh, I, would all, I would respond over and over and over again with awesome. I really got into energy drinks. <laughs> and, uh, and I discovered these things. I, I'd not really ever gotten into them, but the, the cold energy drink at uh, 1, 1.30, 2 p.m., uh, realizing that it has much caffeine as six cups of coffee. I mean, I was all in. They say that's the vitamins that gives you energy. I don't buy it. It's the caffeine. So I, I gave up coffee in the afternoon. I go for a, an afternoon energy drink because it shot me out of life with a cannon. I just loved it. Uh, I'm not the only one who's gotten hooked on energy drinks. You know, Red Bull sold 12 billion cans of energy drink in 2022. There's only like 3 billion people on the planet, you know? So that means that every person in the world could have four a year. That's unbelievable to me. And you're thinking, I've never drank Red Bull. It'd give me a heart attack. Well, that means there's other people who are like me who drink them every day on your behalf. But why did I get hooked? Well, I'm tired. I don't know exactly why. I mean... I mean, I don't sleep real great. I'm a middle-aged man with three kids. I live in 2024. I, it's a cell phone. You can blame everything on the cell phone. Blah, 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 blah. But I think there's something deeper going on for me. And I suspect to some degree it's going on for you too. See, like you, I spend too much time trying to prove myself instead of living out of who I am. My energy is wasted. It's wasted and, and wasted to try to gain approval, to demonstrate that I'm good enough. And really, that just leaves me exhausted and it's pointless. I think that's why I'm so tired. But there's an alternative to this cycle. And it's to flip this paradigm on its head. See, the way that I'm used to living, the way that comes natural for me and likely for you is I do, therefore I am. But what I'm learning is it's the opposite. We should be living out of our identity. Then that goes with I am, therefore I do. Identity always precedes activity. My identity and yours comes from something much deeper than our resume, much deeper than our list of accomplishment. It comes from what God says about you. And that informs, that identity informs what you do. And Christians, we, we aren't immune, immune from this tiresome cycle. We usually attempt to act like Christians in order to gain our footing as Christians instead of living out of who God has made us. And our passage lays this out from 1 John here this morning. Let's read it together. Chapter 2, verse 28 is where we'll start. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you think that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord. You see here, you see the identity piece mostly in the first half of the passage, and you see the activity piece mostly in the second half of the passage. So let's start with the first half, the identity piece, who we are. Look at verse 29 and verse 2. Both verse 29 and verse 2, John mentions this phrase, born of God. It makes you a child of God. We're part of God's family. And being a part of God's family is fundamental to who we are. It's irreversible. It's unchangeable, meaning you can't be disowned by God as a member of his family. You may bring dishonor to the family name. You may do things the family opposes, but you cannot get out of God's family, even if your own family were to freeze you out. In other words, you can't unson or undaughter yourself from your parents, and your parents can't unfather or unmother themselves from their children. You'll always be a part of your earthly family biologically. Same is true for God. Same is true of your spiritual family. You did nothing to cause yourself to be born into your earthly family, nor did you do anything to cause yourself to be born into your spiritual family. John 1, the same John who writes 1 John in his gospel, he writes this in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So a good question is, why did God ask you, why did God ask me to be a part of his family? Why did he do it? Why did God see it fit to give us birth, to give us life? Look at verse one. This is what Justin's saying. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Now what's interesting, what I learned this week is the word that's translated what kind of could also be translated for of what country. <laughs> so if you were to read, to, to read that again, see of what country the love the Father has given to us. So in other words, John's trying to tell us that God's love for us is unearthly. It's foreign to this world. So what makes this otherworldly? What makes his love otherworldly? It's the fact that it's, God's love for us is more than demonstrated. It's more than shown. It's more than offered. God's love for us is given. And it's so broad, so deep, so marvelous, so unimaginable, so incomprehensible, so boundless, so endless, so measureless, 
that John gets really sloppy in his writing. He adds a needless phrase at the end. Uh, right there in verses one and two, you see what it is? And it says, and so we are. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. He, he says it because he can't get over God's love for him. He's astonished. He's surprised even. And there's a sense in which we should be surprised that God would love us, that God would have us. John Newton, you know, the, the, the former abolitionist, or the, the, the former slave trader that was turned abolitionist, and he was a famous hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace, that guy. Well, here's what he wrote about heaven. He said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. If you ever think, of course, I'm the kind of person that God loves, you've just proven that you aren't a Christian. It does so because you don't look at your moral record. You don't look at your feelings to prove your identity as a child of God. You look at God's free grace to give you life through the good news of the gospel. And this good news of the gospel, it, it takes shape here. Yes, it's pronounced in verse 1, but it's given specificity in verses, not, verses 5 and verse 8. In verse 5, we see this gospel. We see how his love is played out in the life of Jesus. In verse 5, it says that Jesus has taken away our sin. Verse 8, it says that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. And when the Bible talks about how Jesus has taken away our sins, and when the Bible talks about destroying the works of the devil, what it's talking about is the cross. See, it was at the cross that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. He became our substitute. He was sinless and therefore able to make, to take on our sins, which means he had to die and absorb the wrath of God for our sin. He took on our filthy rags and he received, we received his spotless royal robes. He took away our sins. Glorious news. His love given to us. And then verse eight, it says that he destroyed the works of the devil, meaning that he put, that Jesus put his foot on the devil's neck. And friend, that's love. He loved you enough to give you life, that, to be born of him. He loved you enough to take away your sin. He loved you enough to keep you safe from the devil. So when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see a love that does not shrink from sacrifice. You see a love that's evoked by no lovableness on your part. You see a love that originates in the very depths of God's heart. At the cross, that's where you see a love that can't be distinguished, but it pours itself out on you and me, unworthy people. So aren't you surprised? Perplexed even? I mean, isn't this dumbfounding? I mean, what else is there to do with this kind of love other than blabber about with needless phrases like John? What else is there to do when someone asks you how you're doing other than just to say, better than I deserve? I mean, Dave Ramsey gets on my everlast nerve. <laughs> but I think that's a beautiful way to respond with how you're doing. But there actually is something else 
There is something else to do based on this love. And that's what we see littered throughout our text. I mean, this is where you begin to see, wow, we got an old man writing this book. I mean, he says about the same thing in nine different ways in 12 verses. He's talking about the fact that our life is to be holy. That being born of God means we've been infused with this divine DNA. And because God's holy, his DNA has been put in us, then we too will be holy. I mean, look at it. Let's just walk through all these. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, he's got expectations for you. Look at verse three. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's talking about your conduct. Look at verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse seven, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Verse 10 again, the one who does not love his brother is not of God. All of these are communicating God's expectations for us. All of these are talking about our activity that springs from, that comes out of our identity. See, you've received a new nature. You've received this new birth. And this nature, it exerts a very strong internal pressure toward outward holiness. That's why in verse 9, John uses the word seed. You see it in verse 9. What is a seed? Well, a seed is something that has living power. It's got organic energy. And the power that a seed has, it's not this chemical eruption that explodes, but it's this organic energy that oozes. It's gradual. It takes time. But the effect is expansive nonetheless. And this is what happens with us. We receive this new birth like a seed internally, and it works its way out in external ways. It gives us righteous and pure living. It, it rids us of the practice of sin and lawlessness. It, it helps us love our brother and sister. All this is language of our text. And you'll see that this seed, this, this righteousness that we have received from Jesus is not just buried in our hearts. It works its way out into our hands and our eyes and our feet and in our speech. This, this idea of holiness is not one of mechanics. It's this vital internal revolution that comes with being born of God. You could never do this on your own. This kind of change that God wants to bring in your life, it breaks, it breaks all categories of personality. It breaks the categories of your temperament. It gives you the desire and the ability to live in a new way where you do the right thing, not just because it's the right thing, but you do so with pleasure and love. You do it for God's glory. You don't do it for your own. That's what this text is talking about. But did you see in verse six and verse nine? Verse six and verse nine, he says about the same thing in two different ways. Verse six, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Frightening, right? Verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
Now, some people use this text to talk about that as we grow in Christ, that we achieve what's called sinless perfection. That you become so mature that you can be perfect. Is that what John means here? Well, remember what we said earlier in the book. Not what we said, what John said. He said this in John chapter 1, verse 8. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Sounds different than verse 6 and verse 9, doesn't it? Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, I mean, he's presuming that you do. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. These two places in 1 John, they, they fall right in line with what we see the rest of the scriptures teach with the ongoing presence of sin in the life of the believer. I mean, think about the Lord's prayer. What does Jesus instruct us to pray? Forgive us our sins. He doesn't say, hey, you say that once, then you don't have to say that prayer anymore. <laughs> That's not the point of the Lord's prayer. The point of the Lord's prayer is to say over and over and over and over again the whole rest of your life. So he says, forgive us our sins. Jesus is acknowledging that sin, the indwelling sin, the ongoing presence of sin will continue to remain in you. Psalm 38 says, there is no, this is, this is a believer talking here. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Psalm 51, David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Or think about Paul. Paul in, the very, in one of his very last letters, 1 Timothy, he calls himself, not that he once was the foremost of sinners, he calls himself in the present towards the very end of his life, after he'd been a Christian a very long time, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Then Paul wrote in Romans chapter seven, he says he does what he doesn't wanna do and he doesn't do what he wants to do because of the presence of sin. And then right after he says that about the compulsive nature of sin in verse one of chapter eight, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here we have, we got John in these two places, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Psalm 38, the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 51, Paul in 1 Timothy, Paul in Romans, all acknowledging that the presence of sin is ongoing in the life of the believer. So how do we square that with verse 6 and verse 9 of our passage today? Well, I think it means a couple things. I think the first thing it means, what John is saying, is that change is possible. You can't ever say that I will always be this way as a way of excusing your sin. I think that's part of what John's saying right here. See, John knows that you have the spiritual DNA of a sinless Savior. You have the power that raised Jesus from the dead in your very being. And if that's true, and it is, then you can get busy about living a life of righteousness and living a life of purity. I think it's part of what he means. I think the second part of what he means is that if you've been reborn and you continue to sin, which is all of us, then what you will do is that you will confess your sin, like John writes in chapter 1, verse 9. It's probably the most famous verse in 1 John. 
It reads like this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, if you're a Christian, you fall short. You do the things you don't want to do and you don't do the things that you want to do, that God tells you to do. What it's going to do is it's going to eat you away. It's going to cause you great pain and it will lead you to confession. But if you do go on sinning without confession, then you need to know that you are in trouble. John makes it very clear in our text here that you have one of two fathers. You can have God as your father or you can have the devil as your father. See, there's no such thing as God being the father of all human beings. He's the creator of all human beings, but only those who have been born spiritually are his children. I mean, Jesus says the same thing in John 8, 44, when he told some unbelieving Jews that their father was Satan. He does the same thing in Matthew 13, verse 38. Paul calls someone a son of the devil in Acts 13, verse 10. You just can't be in a neutral state here. So how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Well, a nice person without the Spirit can look an awful lot like a mean person with the Spirit. The difference is in their disposition towards their own sin and their disposition towards Jesus. So the disposition in their sin is they hate it and they're looking to Jesus to change them. Their disposition toward their sin is that they are totally, their disposition toward Jesus is that they're totally perplexed by his love for them. So which are you today? You don't have to be sinless to have assurance, but you do have to hate your sin. You do have to fight your sin because you want to look more and more like your beloved Savior. You do have to want to reform your habits and your patterns and be conquered and controlled by the Spirit's power in you. And so that when you fall into sin, you, you confess it before the Lord. You confess it before his people. And if that's you, brother and sister, take heart. You're a child of God. But if you find yourself indifferent towards your sin, then be warned. You might confess that you're a Christian, but you don't really hate your sin. And that might be evidence that you're not really converted. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not profess in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The good news this morning is it's not too late. You're here. <laughs> if you're wondering uh, who your father is, who your spiritual father is, who you've been born of, if you're just asking the question, that's evidence that God's at work in you. You're at the very beginning of a life of holiness. Because he wouldn't ask the question if he didn't care. And the only way you can care is that the Spirit is working in you. Let's pray together. 
Lord, thank you that you have forgiven our sins or that you already have destroyed the work of the devil. And Lord, help us to wrestle with our sin. Lord, help us to long for a life of holiness, a life of love for our brother and sister. Lord, we, we, we want this internal power that's at work in us, this seed that you have planted in us, this new nature that you have given us, Lord, to, to work its way out, to ooze through our lives. Oh, Lord, you make us a holy people. We pray these things in your name. Amen.